Welcome to the podcast today. My name's Todd Fraser. With me today is Adjunct Associate Professor Patsy Tremaine, who is a sports and exercise psychologist working with the New South Wales Institute of Sport and the University of Western Sydney. She's also worked with exam candidates for the Australasian Colleges of Anaesthetics, Surgery and Intensive Care Medicine, and she's also an elite athlete representing Australia in diving at the Commonwealth Games level. Welcome to the podcast, Patsy. Patsy, you've got some experience in working with uh, candidates for exams and and how they prepare, and I was wondering if we could talk through some of the issues today regarding that. Yes, of course. Firstly, you began your career as a sports psychologist, and I was wondering how you've come to working with exam candidates. Well, uh, it was interesting. I'd come back from the States, and I, I had a private practice, and I was working in the university doing a lot of sports and I was on um, a radio program with Andrew Ollie, who uh, at that time was running a program, and I was talking about stress and stress management. And somebody later rang up the organisation and said, please give me the phone number for that woman. And it turned out to be the mother of a physician who had already failed three times. And so I started working with that physician. Um, I wasn't sure what he was doing. He wasn't sure what I was doing, but he passed the next time. And from there to word of mouth, it's just expanded. I've learned a lot more about um, the different specialties and how to prepare candidates. I know that you. I've heard you talk before about um, the candidate, particularly that refail, uh, that fails repeatedly. Mm. I was wondering what the issues that you've noticed uh, might be. Well, I suppose one of the most important, apart from the fact that many of them are overseas trained and have English as a second language in which case they don't understand the colloquialism, their body language is different, the way they talk is different. So I have to address their communication skills. But apart from that, I find that people who have failed once or twice, they tend to think more of the same. They don't try and change the way they actually study. And just doing more isn't going to work. In many instances, particularly if they have failed two or three times, I get a feeling they've gone over the material quite a bit and they usually know it. And just in talking to them, their, their, their consultants at the hospitals are saying, you know, you couldn't do it, can't understand why you failed, not knowledge. So if it's not knowledge, then it's communication and it's the way they, they actually study and do their work. So I change that. And that seems to have an effect. What are the sorts of things that you look at changing? Um, well, I, I believe consistent study is important, but I also think that studying, that is taking in, understanding and remembering material, it needs to be monitored so that you're not sitting at your desk for 12 hours a day and getting only four or five effective study hours out of it. Um, 
Um, so changing when they study is important. And I get a few doctors say to me, well, I prefer to study at night. That's when I remember things best. Um, or, and I often say, well, when are you doing your exams? And it usually turns out they're doing them in the morning and in the afternoon. So changing when they're doing their work becomes important. Another way to prepare is to be very specific in your exam preparation. So do your SAQs under simulated exam conditions. And also put pressure on yourself by instead of allowing 10 minutes a question, allow only 9 minutes a question. This way, you're starting to get your brain to think a little bit quicker under pressure. Um, I also find it very important that um, they do a pre-performance routine with athletes. They always have a pre-performance routine uh, before they perform. So with doctors, when they're doing these written FAQs, if they have a little pre-performance routine, that keeps them in a comfort zone. It means they do the same thing to prepare to write that they would they would do it every time. And so in an exam, they become a little bit more comfortable. And by a pre-performance pre routine, I mean taking a breath before you actually read the question. This lowers the heart rate, allows you to focus better. Then underline all the critical words so that you, you're not missing anything. Third, write a little um, plan very quickly down in the margin and then start writing and leave a two-line gap between every part of your plan so that if you forget something, you can insert it in approximately the right place. So doing, having strategies like that seems to, they seem to help. How much does anxiety contribute to it? I would imagine that after, particularly after you failed once before, that anxiety about your performance would, would contribute. Yes. You tend to lose confidence. You tend to have more anxiety. Or you can just get depressed and, use your, and, and have complete lack of motivation. Um, and I, I have a lot of people who say to me, I, I, just, I just can't do this anymore. I've lost my motivation. How can I get it back? So I, I find that changing the way they study and prepare is probably the first thing I do after they, they fail. I find that psychological skills training is an effective method of training doctors to positively alter their thought processes. And research does indicate that there is a relationship between psychological skills training and improved self-efficacy and the ability to self-regulate. Both of these uh, refer to anxiety. You can self-regulate your emotions. These are, both these are common components of improved performance. I, I find that anxiety also can be relieved. I, I, I look at breathing, um, particularly um, not so much for the written, although they take a breath every time that helps their concentration just before an essay do. But for the clinical exams, the oral exams, which are very, very different, I find that they can monitor their arousal levels 
by learning a proper breathing technique and working on it for several weeks well before the exam, they can become aware of rising arousal. They can feel the heart rate rising, they can, they can sense the tension in the body, and they can take a breath to lower it before it gets too high. So I find that they're more able to regulate by, by doing breathing techniques, working on mindfulness techniques, um, working on muscle relaxation. All these areas can help towards anxiety. I was going to say, I, I would imagine that many of these, um, the people that you see are, are both very intelligent and also very high achievers, and many of them may have never even failed an exam before. Yes. That must have significant consequences for them. Yes, and, and this is often the case. Um, they've never failed an exam before, and they're absolutely devastated. They lose their confidence, um, and it, it's a matter of just getting them back into it gradually, changing the way they study, giving them reasons why they should study at certain times. Um, in a past life, I used to be, I, I did my PhD in psychophysiology. So I give them reasons why studying as now as they might be able to intake material a bit more. Um, I give them reasons uh, why the body activates in certain ways and why it slumps at certain other times of day. Um, another area that I often talk with them about is not just handling their anxiety, but also handling how they think. How, how they think. I mean, many of them have this very negative outlook after they fail an exam, especially if they've never failed before. So I give them cognitive strategies to try starting to change the way they think. And often these work. Not always, but often. You also mentioned the the difference between oral and written exams. So, the different strategies that you can employ for those different uh, types of exams. Yes, I think there are. Um, I mean, we're all used to written exams, and um, we can all think and manage to write notes in the margin before our written responses. There's more time for planning your answer, but with oral questions. There's very little time between the question and the verbal response. You're using different mechanisms. You're using your vocal cords and all the rough muscles around the mouth and throat. And we often blurt out an answer before organising our response because we often feel uncomfortable if there's any silence between the question and response. So, again, I, I often get candidates to take a breath before they answer. This enables us just to settle down and focus a bit more. Um, but also I talk about communication because how we sound is also very important as we communicate the information to the examiner. According to research, roughly about 38% of our communication is how the voice sounds. Not the words, just the sound. That is the volume, the volume which um, allows you to sound authoritative and confident, uh, the pitch, which tells the examiner that you're engaged and interested, um, the resonance or tone of your voice, um, you sound believable, uh, your diction, you know, the use 
training so that they're not braining to hear what you say, uh, and pace and pause because it'll have comprehension and digestion. You're not just rattling off a, a whole lot of figures and facts. So if you can imagine, for example, two candidates, each giving a similar response to an examiner, but one candidate is tentative, mumble, and talk in a monitor. And the other candidate talks clearly, is succinct, and sounds engaged in what he's saying. It is possible the second candidate will achieve better marks, despite the fact that both answers are correct, simply because of the way they sound. I, I found that very intriguing. So different strategies, the strategies I work on primarily for oral exams are body language, and the way people sound, uh, in addition to the knowledge themselves. So I, I just find that quite interesting when they get to the oral exam. I remember when I was doing my fellowship, I was often told that if you behaved like a consultant, then you would be judged in that way. Is there any clear understanding? Of, uh, I suspect you've just answered this to some degree, but what are the differences between the way a consultant would answer a question and, well, say, a trainee? I, I think um, a hospital registrar giving an answer to a consultant um, probably sounds a bit like a student giving a well-read answer, just rehearsing the answer and going over it and saying it. Whereas um, a senior hospital registrar who wants to be engaged, wants to take on that um, scenario and be responsible for it um, and sounds as though they are engaged in it, not just rattling off facts and figures. And I think that being engaged and talking loudly and clearly as though you are engaged in that process, that comes through to the examiner. They seem to be able to suss out when somebody is being tentative and mumbling. And even I get the impression that even if the right answer is given, sometimes the examiner might think to himself, hmm, Maybe, maybe she or he just needs a little bit more time. Not, not, they're not quite sure of themselves. And I hear that often. Some of, as I mentioned earlier, some of these people may have not failed an exam in the past, but some of the failure rates of these uh, fellowship exams can be quite high. Is it reasonable to expect to pass the exam the first go, and, and should people be in some way preparing for the possibility that they won't pass? Now, that's, that's interesting. I've just been um, talking with other sports psychologists about Olympians, people who go to the Olympics. Is it reasonable to expect to medal? <laughs> um, and it's, it's much the same sort of thing. What are the, maybe sometimes expectations are way too high. Uh, for instance, can the candidate honestly say they have done the required amount of study? Do they have support in their training scheme or are they battling around on their own? Are they looking after their health, good nutrition, exercise? Do they have supportive relationships? If they have failed previously, have they made some changes to their study? And in the weeks leading up to the exam, are they doing exam-specific testing? Now, 
obviously a lot of people who may be in this position. Are there other people like you in the community able to offer services like this, Patsy? Um, I don't know of any. I honestly don't. Um, I, I, I really feel there ought to be more. Um, and, and I would like to train some people to do this. It's, it's, it's not that hard, but it does mean getting very immersed in the medical culture. Certainly there should be others doing it, but I, I just, I don't honestly know. It's interesting that you said that you need to be immersed in the, in the culture. Uh, what are the sorts of things that you've taken from your experience in working with doctors? In many ways, they're very high achieving, very intelligent people. Um, I find that a lot of the mistakes that I do with athletes, I can do with doctors. I find it's important to know exactly in each discipline what it is they're doing for their written and what it is they're doing for their oral. And it surprises me sometimes that a few weeks out, they're not even sure how, what the orals consist of. Um, so it's very, very important to know that because then you can individualize in the interventions specifically for that person. Um, and I, I, just, I just find it's a joy working with doctors because mostly they're so keen and so interested to learn and, and change, as long as you give them reason. <laughs> I, find, I find all the stuff I do... It has to be evidence-based, um, whereas um, athletes don't ask those sorts of things. Don't, they don't need to know the reason why. I find doctors will engage much more if they know why they should be doing it. Patsy, thank you so much for your time. This has been a wonderful chance to, to talk with you about some of these issues. I know that many of our listeners preparing for exams will, uh, will have... Uh, benefited greatly from listening to you. Thank you for your time. Okay, Todd, it was a pleasure. Thank you. If you enjoyed today's podcast, why not visit our websites, Critique and Crit Nurse. Our websites are leading providers of critical care education resources. Our sites contain podcasts, video presentations and modules, searchable libraries and image databases, and much, much more can be found at www.crit-iq.com and Crit Nurse at www.crit-nurse.com Alternatively, visit our podcast page on the iTunes site and give us a high five.